You're listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. Learn about local issues, meet candidates, and find out what we're doing to bring more options to Georgia voters. Now here's your host, Brent Hilburn. I'd like to welcome everyone to the first ever Libertarian Party of Georgia podcast. So congratulations for making history, everybody who's tuning in. Uh, my name's Brent Hilburn. I'll be your host tonight. Uh, currently, I am a member of the Libertarian Party of Georgia XCOM and a representative for uh, PSC number four. Uh, with us for this episode are Ted Metz. He's our chairperson for the uh, Libertarian Party of Georgia. He's also a candidate for governor and all-around good guy. Uh, Tim Smith, also an XCOM member. He's the Libertarian Party of Georgia public policy director and the representative for PSC number three. And our producer tonight is Matt Franklin from Most Uniquest. The focus for our um, broadcast is rather than delve deeply into politics, we decided that we would discuss each individual's journey to libertarianism and what brings them to the Libertarian Party uh, in hopes that others out there who hear this will say, hey, that's me. And, you know, maybe you will join us uh, in the Libertarian Party. So without further ado, I'd like to start with our esteemed chairperson, Ted. Good evening. Well, you're going to have to cut that out because. Hello, everyone. My name is Ted Metz. I am the chairperson of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. I'm actually serving my second year as that in that position. And the whole theme of this is is to tell you how I came about becoming a libertarian, which is has been a very long journey for me. I can start out by saying that I grew up in a household with a staunchly Republican father and a staunchly Democrat mother. So I'd like to say that my dad was a pessimist and my mom was an optimist, which kind of turned me into a realist. You know, listening to the political discussions really kind of started at a very early age with me because my dad was a Air Force officer. So it was very interesting as being an early child, hearing the dinner table discussions about the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, because my dad was like on the front lines if anything had happened, if anything had come to that, um, that was like, again, it was a very healthy discussion at an early age in childhood when your parents are talking about preparing for war. Um, that kind of made me real, real cognizant of, of how the government was, was able to send us, send people to war over, over international incidents, but I kind of digress there. So, you know, listening to my mother's perspective as, as from the Democrat side and my dad's perspective from the Republican side has uh, throughout my entire life has been very interesting because it, it, it made me realize that on the one hand, the Democrats were mostly, you know, you, all, all my life I've heard of being called bleeding heart liberals, you know, bleeding heart because they care about other people. Um. And that's the thing about the, the Democrat perspective, in my opinion, and my observation over my lifetime has been that they are 
more concerned about their emotions and how things make them feel. And it's, you know, you're supposed to take care of other people. We need the government to interact and intervene into personal relationships where they have no business just to make sure that everyone is treated fairly, treated equally. And my dad's perspective was that, you know, look out for, for business and, and, and means of production and factories and, and everyone has a job, everyone gets an education, everything will be fine. So it's more, much more pragmatic than the emotional side of the Democrat perspective from my mom. My dad's perspective was, you know, the government knows what they're doing. They're benevolent. You know, they're, they're, they want to make sure that everyone um, is also treated equally and fairly and given the opportunity to succeed. And I think that's something that's been lost over the years is, is that, you know, America used to be all about having the opportunity to do whatever you wanted to put your mind to do, you could do. You just had to get up off your butt and, and work for it. Nowadays, um, I think we've seen a complete decline in, in personal work ethics overall, by and large, as well as the ability to set goals for self-improvement. But I'm, again, getting off the track a little bit. Um, so I'm going to go back to dinner table discussions throughout the Vietnam War, watching the body counts back when the news actually reported factual events without, without bias and without opinion and without the entertainment value that we have in today's news. And this is, I'm, I'm mentioning this now because this has been one of the downfalls of America and especially prevalent of, of the baby boomers and the older generations is that when we were watching TV, watching the news, they used to tell the truth. They used to expose dirty dealings. They used to expose scandal and, and the actors in the scandal. And, and, you know, it used to be truthful, unopinionated, unbiased. Just here is the news. You use your filters to get out of it what you want. We're not telling you what you're supposed to think. And then very insidiously over, over the last 40 years, pretty much. And I'll, I can pinpoint the, the date that our news media just completely went from factual reporting to propaganda was after the Watergate break-in. That's the last major scandal government. People got in trouble. People went to jail. A president got impeached over, over wrongdoing, unethical behavior was Watergate. Shortly after Watergate, they formed the Washington Press Corps. And with the Washington Press Corps came the propaganda war, essentially. You know, and along with the Washington Press Corps, all of the news was filtered. It was regurgitated. The script is written, handed down to the news affiliates. All of the, all of the talking heads read exactly the same script. It's all the same. Everybody's getting the same news. Nobody's getting objective facts. They're getting opinion. They're getting spin. And and that's what we have today is, is we don't have news. We have entertainment. Remember, I don't know if anybody watched all this, but I'll, I'll go back to another point of, of fact. In the, in the 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, there was language that eclipsed and repealed the Smith-Munt Act. The Smith-Munt Act basically prohibited 
domestic distribution of propaganda. And I don't know if you noticed, like from 2012 forward, all of the government reports were just essentially either plucked from air or some other orifice on the human body. When the Bureau of Labor Statistics started giving their unemployment figures, being BS, when they started <clears throat> to refigure the breadbasket for the consumer price index, they took out energy, they took out gasoline, they took out food. Right. It's like that's what consumers have to pay the most money for their stuff. And it's not part of the CPI index anymore. So there's no inflation in essence. They're, they're telling you that everything is. By, by fudging the numbers and changing the parameters and the measurement tools. So this is the, this has been my observation throughout my formation of my libertarianism is watching. Um, no matter, watching, no well, matter which this, political party was in charge. It was happening under both of the two major parties all the time. So, and that's 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 one thing that has has led us to this point now, is is the decline in actual news reporting, going from news to propaganda, and now when you actually see news, all of the major mainstream media jumps all over and say, "Oh, that's that's bunk," or they they spin it some other way, and we've seen this time and time again, and and now like, you know a particular person may have drawn a gun and shot somebody. They don't report the race or the culture or anything like that. They just, you know, they try to hide all that stuff because they don't want to make it like about races or anything. But when it comes down to them forcing their agenda, we see things like what has just happened in Parkland where, you know, a bunch of, High school kids don't get national media coverage without somebody pulling some huge strings and paying some money. And we know this because news media doesn't really report on anything unless it's a feel-good story or unless they're getting paid to do it. So, all right, well, anyway, getting back to my journey to libertarianism. Uh, one of the problems that I've seen in my lifetime is, is the invention of the 24-hour news cycle and then the whole, like, news media the whole all everything that you see on tv is about brainwashing that's why they call it programming it's programming like every sitcom you watch they have a dialogue that is 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 supposed to make you have an emotion to make you change your mind about some opinion that they're trying to push for their agenda you know we can talk about that all day long too when we talk about you know johnny is a migrant the son of a migrant worker, and he needs the same education in, in Florida as he gets in California, as he gets in Texas. So we have Common Core. You know, a, 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 they will come up with a storyline to make people emotional over an issue that is not an issue to start with, to change policy so that somebody else can get rich. And this is where I'm really going with all this. What made me into a libertarian was watching government, whether it be state, local, or federal, passing legislations to give special privileges to corporations to screw us over, essentially. Um, one of the things, I don't know if you remember that somebody got really mad about insider trading with, with the congressional staff. So they wrote a bill. They said, okay, no more insider trading. And then a month, three months later, they repealed it without any fanfare. 
So that's that's what I've noticed about government is they will whitewash some stuff. They'll put a spin on it to make you think about it. They'll create a distraction. <clears throat> One of the things that I was involved in, I'm still not there because I, 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 I kind of left off with the, at the end of the Vietnam War. I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead to watching President Nixon on TV announcing that we we're going off the gold standard. And then, you know, living through the inflationary effects of, of, of uncontrolled, un, um, you know, money that had based in nothing, right. thin air. Fiat money. And then, <clears throat> you know, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act and the implementation of, of, of the Dodd-Frank Act and, and everything in that, watching corporations like Citibank wrote, wrote basically the Dodd-Frank Act which allowed them to take depositor funds and speculate with them instead of safeguarding them. And then a few years later, there was a, there was a court ruling that basically says, and this is the way it stands now, if you deposit money in a bank, once the money is deposited in the bank, the, your money becomes the asset of the bank. It no longer belongs to you. And people don't know this kind of stuff. You know, the, the government has been allowing corporations, drug corporations, are exempt from lawsuits, from, from injuries, from their drugs. On the one hand, they push, in some states they even mandate vaccines. Like in Georgia, you can't, you can't start school without having your vaccine regimen. This is kind of an odd thing that I'm talking about vaccines, but when I was a kid, there was like four basic vaccines, polio and measles and a couple others. And then now... There's like 60 different vaccines that a, that a, that a child has to go through because they just increased, oh, vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. And they're giving vaccines for, for things that don't really cause any harm to begin with. Chicken pox, big deal. You're itchy for a couple of days. Mumps, big deal. You swell up. You know, never kills anybody. But now you have to, you have, to have a vaccine for it. But the, where I was going with that is that the federal government exempted, well, they, they gave carte blanche to the manufacturers of vaccines and <clears throat> basically exempted them from, from lawsuits. But on the other hand, they created the vaccine injury. I forgot the name of it, but the, the government has a program where people can actually get some compensation for vaccine injuries and they paid out billions of dollars, but it goes without any media coverage. So basically what you're saying then is, all of this can be tied back to big government and the corporate, two major takeovers. Right. And the two major parties are both in deep with big government. With big and government they are big, and government, big government, government and business. Let's, let's just right. call it a corporation. The corporation right. for the United States of America is basically what we have. We have an imperialist federal government, boots on the ground in 155 of the 195 UN countries. For what? To steal resources from brown people who can't fight back. Um, but that's another story. But getting back to you know Nixon taking us off the gold standard, and then watching the economic effects of that, and then Kent State. Let's talk about Kent State for a second, because up until Kent State, I went to I, I went to public schools and then I went to private schools. But in the in the goal of public schools, no matter where I was, was to give the the instill critical thinking skills and give a child all the tools they need to be a productive member of society. 
including they taught civics. You know, this is how government works, three grant branches of government, three unequal branches of government, because they're not they're not co-equal. You know, the Congress, well, gosh, but I'm I'm kind of skipping around here, but you know, learning government, learning how the government is supposed to work, learning about participating in society, all those things were used used to be taught in school. And I think up until the Kent State massacre, the United States schools were like in the top 10 in the world. All public schools compared all over the world. Of course, some, some districts were worse than others, but you know, generally speaking, the quality of, of, of public education in America was fantastic up until Kent State. Kent State was all about exposing the military-industrial complex in their, in their complicity with Congress to fight an undeclared war basically for profit. They didn't give whether or not they won or lost. You know, that wasn't the point. The point was to sell sell more arms, sell Dow Chemicals, sell an Agent Orange, you know, like like Raytheon, selling bombs, Boeing, selling aircraft. That's all it was all about. It was like let's 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 get rich and uh profit off of off of war. But that's the thing that they've always been doing. They've been doing that since the Rothschilds took over the banking cartel, the global banking cartel. Everything is about money. Everything is about financialization. But anyway, at Kent State, right after Kent State, what happened shortly thereafter was the Department of Education. And you know what happened with the Department of Education and then Bill Clinton saying, well, we got to lower the educational standards to the lowest common denominator, and blah, blah, blah. The edu- public education has gotten worse and worse since that point in history. And now... <clears throat> Now we have, we're at a point where we, with common core education being essentially, um, produced and distributed by an unaccountable corporation, document based learning that you, you can't see the textbook. It's just the document saying, Oh, blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're, there's no one accountable. You, you can't know what they're, what they're, what they're teaching because they can't give out the lesson plan because of the, um, copyright protection of their material. They can't take it home. They can give you a document, but they can't let you take the workbook home, et cetera, et cetera. We have no idea what they're teaching our kids these days. We can't know. We can't find out. And and pretty obviously that they're they're not trying to teach children to do anything more than obey authority, do as they're told, show up on time, be quiet. And what we really need to be teaching are the three R's, which are reason, respect, and rationality, reason, reason, respect, and anyway, you know, our whole education system is, 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 is wrong, in my opinion, at this point, because now you get college kids going to college that, that still have to go through all these remedial classes because they didn't learn in, in high school, and the things that they're learning in college these days, this is another thing, the Emphasis on, on college degrees—it's ridiculous because we have no one to actually do the work, like the plumbers and the, you know, the people who go to trade school to learn how to do stuff that doesn't require a college degree. Um, all right. So anyway, we got Kent State. We got the lowered educational standards, and then we have, <clears throat> then we start having the Clinton administration. And during the Clinton administration, one of the things that the Clinton administration did was him and Al Gore actually came up with a program to convert all of the departments 
into self-funding corporations, essentially. So that's when you have OSHA going out and actually like knocking on doors to see if they can go in and find some OSHA regulation violations so they could like rack up their own money. They did the same thing with the DEA, um, the FDA. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting to the point where I'm about to tell you where I really started becoming a libertarian. I was in the Navy from 79 to 85 under Reagan, and that was great. And when I got out of the Navy, I went to work doing satellite television work because, you know, satellite TV was a, was a big deal. It was the best communication technique we had still today. I mean, most everything is, is run on satellite. Even the cable TV companies have to use satellites to get the programming to send out through the cable. But anyway, the FCC, at, um, I got on a got involved in a fight with the FCC to allow satellite dishes in, in neighborhoods over HOA, homeowner associations, um, rules that said they couldn't have them. Well, we got the FCC to finally overturn all homeowner associations rules to allow satellite dishes in, in people's yards in the, in the homeowner subdivision. I thought that was great. And along with that, there was like concessions with the cable company. The cable companies were to like keep their rates stable, blah, 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 and started tracking that stuff. And that's when I realized that the rules and regulations, even though they're on the books for the SEC, they're not enforced against the people who have the big money. And then that's that's when I started really questioning what what is what is the role of the government? What are they actually doing? Because they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They 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 give these huge rules and they they don't enforce them. And and large corporations like Time Time Warner, Comcast, they can break the rules with impunity. They don't care. And that'll lead me to banking in a minute. We'll talk about banking violations in a minute. So, uh, by the I was I was doing satellite TV while I was going to college, um, working on a degree in, in organic chemistry. When I finished all that, I went to work for a company called Nioxin Research Laboratories and ran a clinical research project, in which we were actually developing um, high end, high tech microbiological components to actually do curative healing things, but trying to run that through the FDA. That's when I was talking about the Clinton administration turning all these departments into self-funding things. That's when it turned into a pay-to-play situation. Um, if we had started our, our, our FDA approval process six months earlier, we could have gotten our, 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 our drugs approved. But because of the way the FDA turned into a self-organized, self-regulating corporation, they changed it to where it would have taken like five year, a five year study and a minimum of like $10 million given, you know, to the FDA for them to go through the approval process. And, and that was just ridiculous. And that really, really set me off because other companies, this is about the same time when, when some of the other companies came up with like FenFen. And some of these other drugs, they paid for their approval. They went on the market. They killed a bunch of people. The drug manufacturer paid a little fine, but they went on doing their same thing, business as usual. No, no one went to jail. No one was punished. And then we have the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, but that's the same thing with the big banks. You know, Citibank is still laundering money for the drug cartels. They got caught recently, and they paid a, a tiny fine, but they're still doing it. Big corporations are, <clears throat> are immune from prosecution. 
which is ridiculous. And and that's what one of the reasons I've, I've, I've got involved in politics was because somebody needs to reign in government. Because government's not fixing themselves. <clears throat> I'd actually got involved in grassroots politics with the Ron Paul campaign in, in 2008. And then I got even more more energetic with it in 2012. But in 2008, I started finding out this is what how politics works and what people need to know about politics. It, everything starts, you know, there's basically two parties that run the whole thing, Democrats and Republicans. And the way they have um, gotten themselves positioned to be the only two parties with ballot access, with the ability to <clears throat> gerrymander and, and, and do districting and such, they put themselves in the position of it doesn't matter what they say or what they do, they're the they're government. So when you say government, you need to think Democrats and Republicans because that's what government is made up of. If we take the Democrats out, then you just have the Republicans, then Republicans will be government. But right now, government is Republicans and Democrats. And they often, even though they put on a good show of, of barking at each other, their compromises are always voted on pretty much in lockstep. There's no significant difference between the two parties' platforms. There's no significant difference in in their actions. Their their rhetoric may may vary some, but their actions are identical. And that that's something that that got me more and more involved. Finding out the process to get elected especially within the two parties, you have to get involved with the, with a local party, either county or city party, and you have to go through the whole rearrange the chairs and show up for the breakfasts and, you know, kiss butt, and et cetera, to get recognized to maybe that you might be able to be their candidate. And the candidates generally are, are chosen long before there's ever an election cycle. You know, I'm sure that, that you know, the, the Democrats probably already had their 2024 candidate in mind for president. But that's another story. So um, the problem we have in America is that nobody really knows how the political process actually works to get on the ballot to get elected. So doing this with Ron Paul, we invaded the Republican Party and we found out all about the county conventions and, you know, all that, all that private club, private organization stuff. Um, I was, I worked my way up in the party, actually had like titles, you know, elected titles in, in the Republican Party trying to lead them to liberty. But essentially they, they, they forced all of us out. There, I got some friends that are still there, but they, they still can't see the light at the end of the tunnel that they're spinning their prop. So as a Ron Paul Republican, I left the Republicans to come to the Libertarian Party because it seems to me we have a lot more of a big tent to bring people in to actually educate them about what the true relationship between man and government should be and what it has become and how we can take it back. You know, fixing government really is, is as easy as strict adherence to Article 1, Section 8, of the Constitution. Enumerated powers. Enumerated powers. Everything else that the government does. See, and this is where I think the, the framers were actually genius. Because not only were they were they um, literate, they were also educated. 
and they also they also most of them shared common values and a common library. If everyone read the same books, we'd all be able to intelligently discuss any subject out of any of those books. But now that's not the way things are because that's part of the Communist Manifesto: control education and control the population, control healthcare, control the population, control the roads, control transportation, blah blah blah. And that's pretty much what we're, where we're at right now. All ten planks of the Communist Manifesto are pretty much been accomplished. Um, so what is what is the answer? Uh, is the Libertarian Party the answer to our problems? Well, I would say the more people who understand the Libertarian philosophy of consensualism, only things by consent and voluntarism, I think we can change the two-party paradigm to get people to really understand that everything should be voluntary that our elected officials are there to serve us. We're not there to service them. You know, and the taxation is theft. It's not voluntary. It's, I did not give them consent. You know, it's not voluntary. I can't avoid a tax that's not voluntary. That was the beauty of the way the original system was set up, is that there were lots of ways to avoid taxation. If you wanted to pay it, fine. But we have a lot to accomplish in, in messaging that, that things... Everything should be by consent. A lot of things the government does is not by consent. Everything should be voluntary. You can, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And there are so many things right now. You can tell when tyranny is in play, when you are mandated to do something, you have to do this before you can do this. You have to have a driver's license before you can get on the road, which, of course, we know is not factually, constitutionally accurate. It's still one of those things that we subjugate ourselves. I think I have to uh, cut myself short here. I'm getting the high sign. All right, so that's how I, I came about being a libertarian, is realizing that the, the two-party system is really the same side of, this, you know, two sides of the same coin, and that we're not going to fix the problems we have in government by going through the Democrat or Republican Party because they are dead set on maintaining what they have. They want their control. They've got control. They've got power. They're going to do whatever they can do to maintain that power, and they're not going to give it up. And most of the power has to do with, you know, being able to, to get campaign contributions to get reelected. So that's really what, what the career politicians are all about, two things, raising money and, and getting reelected, and then doing whatever they're told to do by leadership, or by their campaign contributors, or, or by big corporations who write huge legislation and pop it on the desk and say, oh, you know, here's here's a three-week vacation in the Bahamas, introduce my bill. And that happens at the at the state level. It happens at the local level. When we have, like, like um, organizations like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, who... If they can't get something passed in Washington, they'll they'll divvy it out to the fifty states or even even cities and counties to get their agenda passed. So what we have now is we don't have a capitalist system; we have a corporatist system, and the corporations basically write the write the legislation. They find a patsy, they get them to pass it. Our our uh, federal government again is, is has turned into imperialists, feeding. Basically, the, the banking cartel and military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex and the medical industrial complex. Who'd have thought when I was a kid that, that 
now it takes 20 to 25% of your entire income just to pay for healthcare. And it's not really healthcare, it's sick care. Because healthy people, if we had healthy food and had healthy lifestyles and a clean, healthy environment, we wouldn't need doctors in the hospitals unless it's an emergency to like cut your finger off. So anyway, that's, that's another pet peeve. Um, so I've become a libertarian because I have observed America go from a free nation of free people with critical thinking skills and, and enough neighborly love to resolve differences in their political differences and get along anyway to a, uh, a country where the news media and, and all the governments have an agenda to feed us propaganda to get us emotionally hooked into an issue that is not really an issue to begin with, that pulls us apart. It's the divide and conquer strategy. It's the Hegelian dialectic. Cause a problem. Oh, by the way, here's a solution. Never mind that we're the ones that cause the problem, but here's a solution. Wedge issues. Wedge, wedge issues. issues. Both parties have their own sets of wedge issues God's, that they use. God gays and guns. In order to, right, in order to uh, to divide everybody. So, and, and the other, I think the other problem with, with American society today is that we no longer have a an American shared common system of values and ethics. Because, you know, old people have one set of values. The millennials have one set of values. The things that were important to my grandparents are no longer important to my kids' generation, which kind of does leave a divide. So I think the best that we can do as libertarians is, is give our non-aggression principle a more traction to let people know that, you know, you shouldn't be forced, you shouldn't, People with guns should not knock down your door because you have an overdue library book. For one thing, but the other thing is like if you do, if if you have to give consent, the difference between rape and seduction essentially is 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 consent, and we're being raped all the time. You know, don't steal my stuff. Taxes are ridiculous. Leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. You know, essentially the non-aggression principle is that you don't initiate force to get your way. And that's what I would like to leave uh, the room with, is that everyone needs to understand consent versus coercion. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Ted. That was... Ted has a long and storied journey to libertarianism. Thank you. Tim, how about you? Yes, sir. I first want to thank Matt for um, for the invite and for his services. In case it isn't um, obvious, I am the only black libertarian in the room. As far as I know, I believe there are, that I personally know of, there are four black libertarians in Georgia. There are more of us in Florida, though, and that's where I'm originally from. Uh, my journey into libertarianism is kind of interesting. I guess I would have to start off with my grandparents. Um, my grandparents, well, my maternal grandparents, my paternal grandparents are Native American. My father, 
So I'm black, but genetically I'm biracial, even though I don't look biracial. My maternal grandparents um, grew up in uh, South Carolina. And when they were young, after they got married, they started um, participating in the civil rights movement. Um, my grandparents were responsible as a young couple for registering blacks um, to vote. And the white populace of that particular county was not pleased with their efforts. So one of the things that they would do to scare the um, black population from registering to vote was first they would murder your dog. So let's sit back and take that in for a moment. Your dog would be killed if you tried to register to vote or if they thought you were even considering it. After they murdered your dog or the family pet, then they would proceed to um, burn a cross either in front of your home or under your home. So after a while, um, the word had gotten out that my grandparents were registering or trying to register blacks to vote. Now, you have to understand that my grandfather's kind of crazy. He's not crazy in the clinical definition of crazy, but if you ever met him, he's kind of crazy, meaning you probably don't want to mess with him. And this had been known through the county that that's probably not the guy you want to bother with. So one night or one evening, my grandfather was at a store and he was doing what you do at a store, buying goods. And he went to the cash register to pay for uh, the products that he had purchased. And there was a white fellow at the um, counter and he said, you don't have to pay for these products that you purchased. And my grandfather looked at him and he said, no, I want to pay for it because I have money. Of course, I want to pay for it. The white fellow says, no, no, trust me. It's free. Don't worry about it. My grandfather said he thought about it. And he said, now, if I walked out of the store and I hadn't paid for uh, my groceries, the first thing they would have said is, this black guy just stole from us. And he said he had a feeling that there were other white guys outside of the store waiting for him. He believed that this was a setup. So he says that he put his hand in his pocket and he peeked out of the door and he saw that there were several white um, men outside of the door. And the white fellows outside of the door understood that my grandfather was crazy. And when he had his hand in his pocket, they didn't know what exactly was in his pocket. Now, the way my grandfather tells the story is that he had his beloved 22. Now, we know 22 isn't much, but it will mess up your day. It's not something that you really want to be shot with. So they decided that probably wouldn't be the best day to screw with my grandfather. Um, my grandfather took that as a sign that it wouldn't be long before they murdered the family pet or he would have a cross um, burned in front of his home or under his home. So he got the idea that why would I allow them to murder my dog when it's my dog? I love my dog. And trust me, my grandfather loves his dog. Even to this day, he talks about this dog. It was a collie. And this collie was really smart. Whatever collie or interactions you may have had with the collie, from what my grandfather has told me, his collie is much smarter than your collie. Just want to throw that out there. That's what my grandfather says. I have to take his word. He is my grandfather. So he decided one day that he would take his beloved collie out to the woods. He was going to kill his own dog. He didn't believe that that should be done um, by these racist whites. So he would do it. 
He believed that if he did it himself, it would send a message that I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing, you know, I'm throwing the gauntlet down. And he didn't want to walk home or, or go home one day and see that the dog was splayed out um, on the porch. So he took his favorite dog and says that his dog really loved hunting. So every time he would grab the shotgun, the dog would be really excited because the dog thought they were going to hunt rabbits. So he said this particular time he grabbed the shotgun and the dog was wiggling, wiggling his tail like, yeah, we're going to go hunt rabbits. My grandfather took his dog out to the country or out into the woods rather, and he shot his dog. I've heard this story all my life about this beloved collie. Um, for many years growing up, you know, as a kid, it really, I heard, I heard it so much, it didn't really resonate with me because it was just a story that my grandfather told amongst many other stories. When I was growing up, I guess by the time I got into, when I was in the third grade, my mom decided that she was going to join the NAACP. So she joined the NAACP and because she joined, I joined also because she's my mom. So we would um, go to these NAACP meetings and my mom became active in the NAACP and long story short, she um, became a state officer within the NAACP. And as a kid, we would go up and down Florida talking about the NAACP, um, different projects that they were working on, um, different issues that they were tackling. So I didn't realize until I was probably um, 15 that my grandparents, or I shouldn't say realize, but I wasn't told that my grandparents um, were actually part of the civil rights movement. I just knew about um, the dog being murdered. I said all of that to say this is that growing up, I grew up not in a black, um, my experience wasn't as the typical black person, meaning that um, I didn't grow up I, I, in a black neighborhood. Well, I did, but um, my formative years, or what I like to think of as my formative years, was not in a black neighborhood. Most of my friends um, weren't black. I didn't really have the black experience, quote unquote. So I decided when I was 18, um, went to, I attended a really good high school. Um, and there were a few blacks um, at the high school. The, pop, the, the number of blacks is really, really small. And I met this, this girl. She's really, really smart. And we're still friends to this day. And she's like, I'm going to this black college, an HBC. And I'm like, what's an HBC? And she's like, it's a historically black college university. I'm like, okay, so which one are you going to? She's like, oh, I'm going to go to FAM. And looked into it, and I was like, oh, this would be cool. Now I can experience the, um, the, the so-called black experience, in quotes. So I um, um, sent off to, to attend FAM, um, was, of course, um, accepted, and I went to FAM. Now, at FAM, FAM's located in Tallahassee. Now, Tallahassee has changed within the last 10 years, but... Um, it still hasn't, it's not like, oh my gosh, you go back and it's like, oh, I can't believe this is Tallahassee. Tallahassee is in the deep south. And before I attended Tallahassee, I uh, attended um, FAMU, um, one of my mom's friends told her, you know, you really got to watch out about being in Tallahassee because it's very racist there. And we're not talking about, oh, so I have to, you can't see me. I look a lot older than I am, but I'm a 30-something millennial. So I'm not talking about things that happened like in the 80s or 70s or 60s. I'm talking about crap that happened in the early 2000s. 
early to mid 2000s. So she said, you really have to watch it um, because, you know, the cops are pretty racist and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really see anything about the cops being racist. There was a story about this baseball team that had played FAMU in the um, mid 90s and they had issues. So I didn't really see the point of it. I, I did because this wasn't what I was used to. This was something that happened when my grandparents were around. This isn't something that would happen um, in, in our time. So went to FAMU, um, experienced FAMU, very interesting, had an incident with the police. Um, my neighborhood was not um, a mixed, it was not a um, culturally diverse neighborhood that I was living in. Um, it was a white neighborhood. It was in the white section of town. And I had a nice car. It was a brand new um, car. It was, you know, car that a typical white student who is from a middle to upper middle class family would, would drive, but I was black. So one day I'm driving my car into my neighborhood and this deputy pulls me over and she says, well, I'm, I'm pulling you over. And I'm like, okay, so why are you pulling me over since you're not telling me why? And I was very nice to you. You have to understand, very nice uh, and very polite because I had been warned about situations like this. And she says, well, I don't believe you own this car. I'm like, what do you mean you don't believe I own this car? She goes, there's no way you can own this car. I'm like, I own this car. My mom gave me this car for my birthday. It's mine. You can run the tag. So she goes, no, I don't believe you own this car and sit here and I'm going to run the tags on your car. So sat there for about 45 minutes. I'm not exaggerating, 45 minutes. And she comes back and she says, well, you know, my computer's down, but you can go. And I'm like, we've been here for 45 minutes and now you tell me my, your computer's down and I, and I can go? And she goes, yeah, you can go. So I'm like, you know, I live literally like, six houses down you could have just knocked on the door and asked the neighbor if this is my car and she says stop being smart leave like okay whatever so um i left and that was a turning point for me because at that point i began to question the authority that the government has um before then let me if i can jump back um i was a democrat when i turned 18 registered Democrat. Um, but I felt confused about being a Democrat because I didn't fully understand why we were Democrats. Um, I grew up in a very Christian, uh, conservative Christian household, very conservative. Um, if you guys remember Martin, remember Martin, that TV show? Martin. Well, Martin was a sin um, for me growing up. And I remember one day we were at Bible study and my mom's pastor was like, okay, well, you know, Bible study's over. And everyone was just sitting there talking. He's like, listen, Bible study's over. We have to go. Martin is about to come on. And I'm sitting there freaking out, looking at my mom. Hey, the pastor is watching Martin. I should be allowed to watch Martin. So I said, all I had to say this is that even though we were... Democrats, it was weird for me to be Democrats because the Democrats were saying, well, you should be able to do generally whatever you want to do. You should be able to have a homosexual relationship if that's what you want to do. And I was like, well, that conflicts with the way I was brought up. And I'm looking at my mom like, how do you, how do these things mesh? How do they work together that we are Democrats, but yet um, we, we are, we're, 
you know, we believe basically, well, actually, literally, we're Pentecostal. How does this work? And she didn't have an answer for me. She was like, well, this is just, you know, what we are. So I was about 18. And then, you know, they say, you know, there's that meme that, oh, um, when you're a kid, you're a Democrat. And then when you get your first paycheck, you know, you change a little bit. You begin to, you know, you it's like, I don't know, it's like one of those pictures that when you move it, it the image flips. So I was like that. I, I, I had a job when I was in college. Um, and it was a summer job, but it was a job. I was getting a paycheck. I had to wake up and work this job. No one else was working this job for me. So I get my paycheck and I put in a lot of hours and I'm excited. Now I, I know about taxes. I'm not, you know, I, it's not like I didn't know about taxes. So I know about taxes. So I'm like, eh, they probably took like $5 out. I mean, why do they want to take a lot of taxes out of my paycheck? It's not like I'm rich or anything. And the government has to understand that I need this money because I'm going to buy stuff for my apartment. You know, so the government would be nice to me. They would be considered. This is all going in my head as I'm ripping open my check. See how much I earned. And after I ripped it open, pretty much had a heart attack. Because I'm like, wow, this terribly sucks. Don't they know? Like, I'm a protected class here. Black folks should get like a discount on taxes. What's going on here? Like I was, it, it was like a personal offense to me to see that they took all of this money out of my check. So I was like, yeah, I'm done with the Democrats. They kind of suck. Yeah, no, I'm going to switch over. So then I became a registered Republican. Now in the black community, this is a joke. So please don't take this seriously. There aren't that many black Republicans. And I don't know if you guys remember um, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle used to had that skit where um, they had the um, trade uh, like for sports where you can trade um, uh, you could trade different members of your race. Like Tiger Woods was part of the white race. And we were like going to we were considering should we take Tiger Woods and give up like Mike Tyson? We couldn't decide that. It was like that. So for me to become a a Republican, it was like, I probably shouldn't tell anyone about this because I might get kicked out of the black race. I might lose my black heart. So I, I probably should keep this under wraps. So I floated the idea to my grandmother. Well, girl, what do you think if I became a, a, a um, Republican? And I had to jump on this quickly because, you know, they are conservative, just like we are. And not only that, they want us to keep our money. They, they don't want to tax us like the Democrats. She just looked at me and I was like, well, maybe I better not try this with any other family members. So that was my thing um, initially was that I was going to become a, a, a Republican because I wanted to save money. And then I thought about the um, Republican Party <clears throat> as as time went on. Um, it was just it just didn't feel right. For some reason, it was like uh, it's like putting on a shoe. You wear a size 12, but you're trying to squeeze into a size 11. It's like, yeah, you might be able to get your foot in, but it just doesn't feel right. And then I had a problem, again, with, with authority. Not that I don't accept authority. It's just that I don't understand how someone that I've never met is able to dictate what it is that I do with my life if I'm not negatively affecting anyone else. And that was my problem with the with the Republicans. But again, they want me to keep my they're saying lower taxes. And you have to remember, I'm a kid, so I don't know any better. I'm like, oh, yeah, these people are going to stick to their word because I'm naive. 
So we're doing this is during the um the the Bush W's presidency. And I have a, a best friend. He's black also, one of my best friends. He's black and he one day was talking, he was like, you know, and, and he's not American. Um he was like, you know, um, so just to piggy just to if I can jump in a little bit here. It's okay for blacks that aren't quote unquote American that weren't weren't there, you know, they're not African American, but they're hyphenated American, um, to to be Republicans in the black community because we're like, they don't know any better. So when he said that he was considering leaving the Democratic Party, first thing that thought into my mind was he just doesn't know any better. He's not a real black American, so he's okay to do this. And we were talking one night and he goes, Well, you know, I'm looking into into the Libertarian Party. And I'm like, the Libertarian Party? He's like, yeah, I'm looking into it. I'm like, well, what are you looking into the Libertarian Party for? He goes, because I want less government intrusion. And at the time, we were both in real estate. This is um, this is um, the beginning of the, um, the last, uh, rather the previous um, run in, in, in residential um, in the residential um, market. And we were both flipping houses at the time. And we were making good money flipping houses. And he goes, I- I'm looking for, I, I want, I-, I just don't feel comfortable with with the the Republican Party because, you know, it just feels kind of yucky that they are interested in what it is that people do in their bedrooms. And I'm like, okay, so tell me about this Libertarian Party. And he goes, yeah, you know, the Libertarians believe in blah, 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 and X, Y, Z. And I'm like, okay, I mean, he's telling me all of this. And he's telling me this, and he's like, I'm really thinking about it. And then it hit me. He has not considered everything about the Libertarian Party. So because this is my best friend, I want to help him out. So I, you know, interject, hey, but what about the roads? And he looks at me and goes, we can privatize them. I'm like, what? What do you mean privatize them? He says, yeah, we can privatize them. We don't need the government to 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 tax us for the roads. And I'm like, are you sure about that? Because how else are we going to get roads? He goes, there were roads before the government started taxing for roads. And it was like my mind, it was like mind blown right then and there. Um, my grand, my, not grandfather, my father, um, has a master's degree in, in, in American history. I think that's what his master's degree is in. And, one thing that we can talk about together and grew up talking about is is American history, U.S. history. So I'm it, when he said that, I'm like, crap, he's got a point. There was a time when the government didn't tax us for roads. And that night really did something to me. And I said that to say this is that my belief in, in libertarianism, especially for millennials, I think there has to be a road to Damascus event that takes place because I think, and, and Ted hit on, Ted talked about this. I think the way the school systems work and not just the school, the school systems, but, uh, and, and if we look back, um, baby boomers, you know, they're like, I hate to, you know, throw the baby boomers under the bus, but you all kind of suck. Just throwing it out there. The baby boomers have really been brainwashed. They've been brainwashed into believing that the government shall provide. We are to trust the government. And because of baby boomers, and my mom, my parents are baby boomers, because the baby boomers believe this, 
they've transferred this faith into their children. So children believe this also. And and for me, there was a a, a situation, a, a road to Damascus that, that transpired. It was my paycheck. I just didn't understand. Why the heck are they taking all this money out of my paycheck? And I think in, in, in talking with people, and this is something that um, LP Atlanta is really is really trying to to really jump on is is going out doing street outreach, going out into the communities and talking to people. Um, in talking with people, I think that we've gotten to the point, and I'm not saying that it's a a it's a a situation where you know all hope is lost. I'm not saying that at all. I wouldn't be wasting my time. I'm saying that we have to be prepared as as prepared as libertarians to really sit down and talk with people and not expect them to just jump on libertarianism because we've shown them the way. Um, it's just I, it's just not going to happen. We have to be prepared to listen to them. It's like not, not trying to get all Christian on people, but there's a verse in the Bible that says one plants the seed, one waters the seed. I think with my friend um, telling me about libertarianism, he planted the seed. I didn't become an instant libertarian after the seed was planted. And I thought about this and I saw the, the Bush administration. I began to question, well, if the libertarians are saying that you should be able to do what it is that you want to do. And I'm just this is my understanding of libertarianism at that point. You should be able to do what it is that you want to do, want to do as long as it doesn't negatively affect someone else. Where is the problem with that? Why do we need to have legislation that says otherwise? Why are we trying to push our our beliefs on other people? So we have to, going back to the way I grew up, I grew up, I don't think it gets much more conservative Christian than I grew up. I was like, yeah, you know, that that works. Because my understanding of Christianity is that you can't beat someone over the head with Christianity. You can't force them to become a Christian. So if my understanding of the Bible is that I can't force you to become a Christian, why then is it okay for the government to force those that aren't Christians to become Christians? And you say, well, how does the government do that? Well, the government says, well, you can have a relationship with someone of the same gender. Well, why can't you? Because it's a sin. It's wrong. Okay, so that is the government then forcing Christianity onto a person who isn't a Christian. How is that going to negatively affect my life? Can I not live a Christian life if someone else decides to live in sin, no matter what their sin is? So I began to ask this question of myself is, is it right to then force my moral, what my idea of morality is onto someone that I don't even know? And as that question began to linger uh, in my mind, I began to really, really think about libertarianism. And what does that mean that I should be able to do what I want to do? as long as it's not negatively affecting someone else. And then I began to look at the point of where and why are we being taxed? We're being taxed to continue. We're, we're, and this is the thing, right? When, when Bush was in office, you have to read, this is, this is after 9-11. And I have friends that were graduating high school and they were going into the military. I have one friend right now who's still in the military. And I began to think, you know, the first instinct for me was, hell yeah, let's go bomb the hell out of them. 
because that's the way I was brought up. No one screws with the U.S. We are the biggest and the baddest. If you're the biggest and the baddest, everyone has to bow down to you. And my friend who first introduced me to libertarianism as he was talking, this is, you know, these are conversations that are transpiring over weeks. He goes, well, you know, we really did cause 9-11. And for some reason, I didn't jump over the couch and beat him across his head. I don't know what happened. I was probably feeling good that day. I don't know. Probably had a little Taco Bell. Taco Bell makes me calm. So I, I didn't do that for some reason. Because, you know, I come from a military family. My father was in the military. My uncle was in the, mil- was in the military. My cousin was in the military. Every male in my immediate family has been in the military. I am the only person in my family, male, that hasn't actually been in the military. So when he said that, I don't know what happened. Again, Taco Bell must have had some earlier. I didn't just jump across the couch and wring his neck. And he must have saw the look in my face. He goes, it's true. And I'm like, why? What are you talking about? It's true. He goes, well, what happens when you take from someone? Does that person get upset? Does that person not feel angered because you've taken from them? And I'm like, yeah. Of course, that's natural for them. He's like, well, that's what happens when the U.S. goes into another country and they dictate what that country should do as far as their government. And we've done that throughout the world. And because it's my best friend and not someone that I equate with being a hippie, I decided to to listen to him. And as he began to to really jump into the the, the meat and potatoes, if you will, of of our exploits across the globe and our interference into other people's um, <laughs> other people's business and nation building, I began to understand that yes, this is terribly wrong. This is this is like the Matrix, and Matrix, even though it had been a few years, it was still resonating with us. And at that point, for me, he was what was um, Lawrence Fishburne, Fishburne's character again. I know, I remember Neo, but whoever, he was like Lawrence Fishburne, Fishburne's character to me. He had, oh God, I just, I just had it. Um, Morpheus. Oh, hand clap, hand clap. Yes, Morpheus. Morpheus. He was the libertarian Morpheus for me. Because I really was like, crap, give me this gold pill. I want more of this. And it became something for me, like, I don't know, it, it, when he, as we spent more time discussing libertarianism, it really began, it was like, I hate to, to say this, but it was almost a religious experience for me. Because my eyes had been closed to, to all of this. My eyes had been closed to the idea of liberty. For me, liberty was, well, if you're an American, of course you have liberty, because we have a constitution. Okay, I didn't understand that if you go throughout the history of the United States, how the Supreme Court has given their opinions and ruled that, oh, well, Mel, you really don't have that right. Or, yeah, this right here is. And one of my favorites is the Fourth Amendment. Oh, my gosh. I can talk all day on the Supreme Court's theories on what the Fourth Amendment is, um, but won't go there. So when he began to 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 share with me libertarianism, it was like, man, you're like. Morpheus, dude. And I'm like Neo. And I'm like, it had got, I remember one night I had gotten so excited about libertarianism 
that I was like, I just jumped out of the couch and it was like a scene from, you remember that scene in, 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 um, the Matrix where Neo realizes that he knows Kung Fu and he's like, looks around, he's like, I know Kung Fu. And I was like, I know Liberty. It's been open to my, I, I know Liberty. And I'm like, I'm going to run out of this house and I'm going to tell everyone I know about libertarianism. And because I'm excited about it, everyone is going to grab a hold of libertarianism. We're sitting here today and we know that didn't happen. Oops. Exactly. And, and you know, and I, I said that to say this is that, again, going back, libertarians, we, we have to have patience. We have to realize that there is a, a, a mindset that is in people and we, we just have to have patience with them. I, I'm, totally believe that we that most people are going to have to have a a road to the masses experience um before they come to um the realization that the republicans and the democrats are literally either side of the same coin and i had a talk there was a i don't know how much time i have okay so <clears throat> interesting story if i may may i sure okay so I am engaged, and my fiance she has an addiction to coffee. I don't know if anyone has lived or has a close friend that has an addiction to coffee, but if you have an addiction to coffee, it makes you go to Starbucks pretty much two or three times a day, especially if your addiction is to Starbucks coffee. <laughs> so I find myself in Starbucks wondering, how the hell did I get to Starbucks? So I was at Starbucks one day and was sitting there and this lady is, is um, this particular Starbucks has a lot of faculty from a couple of the local universities. And I'm sitting there and this lady is sitting there next to me and she's like, she turns to me and she looks at me like she's really exciting. She goes, you've got to sign this petition because we need to get Trump out of office because he didn't win fairly. He cheated. And I looked at her and I'm like, okay. So I'm used to this. And I'm like, okay. So I'm like, okay. I'm shaking, nodding my head. Okay. Okay. I'm hoping that the lady will leave me alone. She doesn't. Because she didn't get the the response that she wanted out of me. So she's like, um, yeah. So we need to do this because... You know, Hillary Clinton won. She she was the one that should be president and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there like, okay. So I ask her a question. What's the difference between Hillary Clinton and, and, and Trump? And she looks at me and she goes, one's a Republican and one's a Democrat. I'm like, okay, but let's look at this. You have Hillary Clinton and you have Trump. And... You can't really tell me a difference other than that they, one's a Republican and one is a a Democrat. Let's look at them. Both of them will get us in a war. Why will they both get us in a war? Because neither candidate believes that we should stay out of other people's business. So they'll both get us into a war. That's not true. Yes, it is because it's the history of our country. You can't look, you can't tell me re in, in recent history where one candidate, where one party is, has told the line and said, we're not going to go to, to war. It's just not going to happen. You had Clinton who, who did that. Don't want to go through the whole history because we, we know it. So she looks at me and she, she gets upset and she just goes and she turns around, turns away from me. It's like I cursed her cat out or something. She took it really personally. 
And I'm like, well, okay. So this guy was sitting next to me. And he goes, well, I, I heard you talk to her. And I, I just I just don't understand it. You're black. And I'm like, yeah, I'm black. And he goes, you should be a Democrat. And I'm like, why? Just because I'm black? He goes, yeah, you should be. Because the Republicans don't really care about black people. I'm like, that's interesting. So please enlighten me as to why the Democrats care about black people. He goes, well, because Obama was president. We elected Obama as president. I looked at him and I said, well, thank you for electing the first black president as first black person as president. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for that. And he goes, you really should be a Democrat. And we began to talk with each other. We began to speak. And the conversation lasted for a good while. And what I, when I left the, the table from him, I left with the feeling that he believes this because he has never been placed in a situation where he had to believe or hope for something else. And the Libertarian Party, going back to this, I think we have to be the party of hope. We have to be the party that says, listen, there is hope. Whatever situation you may be going or dealing with, like taxes, Taxes are nasty. Ooh, anyone watches Paul Pluta, the method actor who who portrays Archie Archibald the Third on YouTube, knows that saying taxes are nasty business. And I'll tell you why taxes are nasty business. And this was again, taxes was really the thing that brought me to the Libertarian Party. And I think this this will be something that will bring more millennials and the post millennial generation. Um, is taxes. And the reason for that is because of how younger people generate their income. When you have to pay capital gains tax, that is an experience that you never forget. And I'm talking about short gain um, capital gains tax. That right there is an experience for you. And I've spoken with 30-something millennials that are doctors. Um, in fact, I'm engaged to one. And 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 speaking with my fiance, who is a diehard, and she's not an um, an American in quotes. She is. She has just, just became a naturalized citizen, but her family's from Jamaica. One of the things that um, speaking with her, it's 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 like we can talk about all of the you know well you know people should be able to do what they want to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that one thing that resonates with her is. Why the hell am I paying so much in the taxes? Like, where the hell is all of this money going to? And you know, it was funny that someone posted, I don't know if you saw that, Nat. Someone posted a meme, oh, not a meme, I, I call that at home, a meme of Cardi B. Now, I don't know who Cardi B is. I listen to the Smiths. I listen to new wave music. You know, I'm, you know, Joy Division, New Order, those are my guys. But I saw this meme of, of Cardi B, and she goes, and the meme, or maybe it was an article, and she, you know, there's a caption, and she's asking, where the hell are my taxes going? And I clicked on the article, and in the article, she says, well, you know, I'm wondering, like, you're taking all of this, the taxes out of my, my, you know, paycheck, where the hell is it going? And I think that's something that a lot of people are beginning to ask themselves as they matriculate in their careers. Where the hell are my taxes going? I don't see any benefit to my taxes, and I think that's a way that we can turn this conversation of, of um, what is this that they're calling it, uh, fair wage. Usually, everyone, a guaranteed wage, I believe is what they call it in Canada, I'm not sure, but anyway, a guarantee, or is it in Europe, 
anyway, everyone should have a fair wage. And I'm like, yeah, everyone should have a fair wage. And we can start by making sure I get to keep all of my taxes because that is fair. And I think as, as libertarians, we need to, to, to tackle these situations, these, these issues head on and in a way that people are able to relate. Uh, maybe it's just me, but I think a lot of people are able to relate when I can tell them the Libertarian Party wants to keep more money in your pocket. And we were discussing earlier, someone mentioned, well, people refer to you all as the weed party. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's true. People are always like, you know, the Libertarians are the weed party. And, and that's our fault. We need to own up to that. We help instigate that image of we are the weed party. We shouldn't be the weed party or whatever the, the whatever pick your poison is. That's not what we should um, identify. And I, I'm I, at least for me, that's what I always saw libertarians as. Is yeah, hippies who are let's Republican hippies who want to smoke weed. And I think we can change that 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 notion. We can change that idea of, and and this is what I tell people all the time. It's not that we're for smoking weed. We're just for government telling you not to smoke weed because where is the victim in that? So I'm going to end there. I appreciate Matt's help. I appreciate Brent, Ted, our esteemed chairman. Actually, he chair doesn't want to be purse. chairman. He wants to be chairperson. Excuse right, me. Right. Right. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. That was, uh, that's quite a journey, especially, uh, you know, your story with your grandfather and all that's quite a journey. Quite a journey. Uh, I'll speak to my own personal journey to libertarianism. I was raised in a apolitical family. So never remember my mom or dad really ever talking about politics in any measurable way. You know, we're this, we're that, we vote for this, we vote for that. But having lived in Georgia in 1976, when our governor ran and won the presidency, that was actually pretty uh, a pretty interesting thing to be in the state where the president was elected. So, of course, you know, home team guy. So, you know, I'm too young to vote for him, but that's home team guy, you know. So the 1980 election comes up and I'm I'm all in for home team guy. You know, I'm I'm a Carter guy. Now, I'm not old enough to vote yet, so I don't get to cast my vote. But I watch home team guy get destroyed in the in the election by Reagan, just absolutely decimated. I mean, probably one of the worst electoral losses. Uh, so, you know, at that point, I'm thinking, wow, this is this was pretty bad. So I, I should really look into this Reagan guy because, I mean, the whole country can't be that wrong. I mean, not not that bad. So. 84 was the first election that I was able to vote in. And by that time, I was an all Reagan guy. Okay. I mean, I was all in for the Republicans. You know, strong national defense, project power around the world, you know, America first, you know, the whole rah rah nationalism. Great. And, you know, honestly, by that time, Reagan had, had, uh, and, and the, and the politicians had begun to turn the economy around and things were improving. And I thought, man, we are going to have years of, you know, Republicans. I mean, you got, you know, Reagan will leave. Things will be great. We'll have more Republicans. So then, then began the interesting plight of the Republican Party. 
you learned after Reagan that Reagan was an anomaly. He was not the standard. Now, I didn't know that at the time, obviously, but you learned quickly as you moved from Reagan to George H.W. Bush. He was much more liberal and much more progressive in the in in those, you know, in that sense. And, you know, the no new taxes thing and then turn around and raise taxes and really, you know, put a big ding on the Republicans. And we and then, you know, and by that time, I was really a Republican in the in the deepest sense of Republican being from Georgia. We don't have any you know, we don't have to register to vote. So you just call yourself a Republican and you work for Republicans and you knock on doors and you vote and you vote. You know, at one time, Georgia had a single punch ballot where you could vote the entire ticket with one punch. You could click, you could, you could actually punch the ballot that said all Republican and stick it in the box. You didn't even have to go through each individual race. It was awesome. You just punch it. I mean, talk about, Talk about elections on, you know, uh, autopilot. You just go in, click the one button, drop your ballot in, and off you go. You voted Republican. Yay. So we got Bush, and Bush led to Clinton. And so for eight years, I was depressed. I was miserably depressed for eight years because, oh, my God, we now have a Democrat in office, and it's going to be the ruination, and we're all going to, we're going to go to hell. We're just going straight to hell with Clinton. And, you know, interestingly, Clinton never got a majority. I mean, he won two elections and never got a majority of the popular vote, which is probably probably up until that time was, you know, unforeseen and, 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 and probably will never happen again uh, unless we have a, you know, a substantial third party. in. but, you know, Clinton was never he was never popular in terms of, you know, across the country, abroad a broad spectrum of voters. But, you know, I watched, I, I really paid attention then because when the other party that's not your party is in power, you pay really close attention to what your party's doing in opposition. And the one thing I began to notice is, and this is, this is sort of where my, this is sort of where my journey to liberty comes, is each party had wedge issues. They used one of their issues to beat on the other party, whether it be abortion, whether it be immigration, whether it be taxation, whether it be whatever, the party in power would consolidate their power and the party out of power would beat the other party up with whatever those wedge issues were. I always felt like it was a mistake for the Republicans to use social issues as wedge issues. Abortion, you know, the Those things are very personal to people, and when you use them as a as political leverage, you you inflame to the point of I mean you could see how how one side or the other was inflamed and passionate against that other side, and you know that that really was and you know and Clinton Clinton was not the most well you know Clinton was not really he was not really very uh, probably one of our first outwardly unmoral presidents. Okay. And so from a conservative Republican side, you know, you thought this guy was the antichrist. Okay. I mean, look at what he's doing and you know, the things he was, I mean, so as a conservative, you know, but then I, but again, I began to notice that really 
didn't really matter who controlled the House, didn't really matter who controlled the Senate. The president was sort of just there to, you know, kind of influence policy. But really, nothing was different, you know, during that time. So then we move on after Clinton. We move on predictably to another Republican. And then we have 9-11. And I believe for me, 9-11 was my, that was probably my, where I took the fork in the road. Because the Republicans who were always supposed to be the small part, you know, the small government party, they all of a sudden began to pass things that I found completely egregious to that, particularly the Patriot Act. And for me, I looked deeply into the Patriot Act and said, you know, this might be the worst piece of legislation that we've ever passed for liberty. Okay. And you know, it, I really had some concerns about about where the Republicans were going. I knew where the Democrats were. Democrats were always government. Democrats were always for the little guy. Republicans were always big business for the rich. But, you know, I watched and it turned out that was absolutely not the case. The Democrats had big donors. They had the unions and they had the, you know, and they had and they had big business donors and the Republicans had big business donors. And, you know, I started to realize where, where, where's my representation? Cause I'm not a big business. Where, 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 where am I? Where do I fall in all of this? And so, so we had two terms of, you know, we had two terms of Bush and again, you know, the, 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 the branches changed a little bit. You know, we fought over the, the Supreme court nominations, you know, we did all that stuff, you know, it, in, you know, hindsight was that was all theater. Because in the end, it always turned out the same way. We're always raising the deficit. We're all we're you know we're not we're not living within our means. I mean, our country generates over three trillion dollars in revenue every year. Revenue—that's a government word for taxes. I like that word, revenue. We generate over three trillion dollars, and we can't figure out how not to spend four. I mean, that to me, that's amazing. And, you know, you began to look and it didn't matter who was in the White House. Didn't matter which party. Didn't matter. So we so we moved from Bush and then we moved to Obama. Now, I never was as a Republican. I never was an Obama hater. OK, because by that time, I realized it doesn't really matter who's who's at the head. Really matters who's doing it to you locally. OK, you really got to get right down to your local politics. At the national level, these guys are all, it's one big club. Let's be honest. It's one big club. And it doesn't matter who's in charge. You're going to get the same policies. And as we've gone on, you've watched the parties nearly join each other. I mean, there's controlled opposition, but in the, in the sense that we don't really have any opposition there's no one speaking for us anymore down at the lowest level. What you have now is you have cronies, you have you have corporatism like like Ted said. You have corporations who are, you know, and and this is not a grand, you know, this is you know, libertarians get accused all the time of being, you know, conspiracy theorists. Look around. If you look at the top 20 donors to politicians and see who they are. They're either unions or big business. That's who's donating my it's not me. I, I don't get a seat at that table because I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to donate. So 
we and I also noticed something else that was interesting. The candidates for president were really they 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 began, you know, they began to get more polarized. You know, it wasn't, you know, there were no more there were no more John Kennedy Democrats. The, those those had been those had been eliminated from the party. The Republicans were all fractured up. You had the far right conservative wing of the party. You had the moderate wing of the party. You had the liberal wing of the party. So the conservatives were all in a, you know, they were all a mess. The Democrats had moved further left and the, you know, their moderates had, had, were gone. And some of them even came Republicans. That happened, that happened here in Georgia, as a matter of fact, when we had our, we had our revolution in Georgia, we had a lot of Democrats just wake up and say, Hey, guess what? Today I got an R by my name. Now, come on. There are no principles involved in that. That that that's political expediency. There's no, there's nothing there. There's no there there. Okay, we knew what you were yesterday. You can't just be a Republican today because you want to remain in power, which is in essence what it is. So you know, we moved through the Obama years, and you know, we watched Obama, we watched Obama double the national debt. We watched him double. We watched Bush almost double the national debt. He went from six to 11 and then Obama went from 11 to 20. So then we come to the Hillary Trump race in a country of 350 million people. We got Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And for me, that's when the two party system ended. Now, I had always had a libertarian streak, meaning I really didn't care what people did in their private lives because I really didn't think, you know, social issues were dumb to me to be in politics. You know, who people sleep with, who they marry, who they love, uh, you know, if they want to smoke weed at home in the privacy of their home, if they want to own guns, you know, you're not going to prevent uh, a woman who wants to have an abortion from having an abortion. You're just not. Okay, so for me, social issues were always just and I use the word dumb. They were just dumb in the sense that why are you politicizing all these? Because these are things people are going to do anyway. Okay, but I quickly realized the reason is because you can make one side hate the other side, you know. And so as I got to the end of to the end of the, you know, the the, the Trump versus uh, uh, Clinton, uh, you know, that race, I realized I cannot participate in two-party politics anymore. I just, I can't. Now, I've done everything in the Republican Party, okay? I've been a precinct captain. I've, I've been to the, the state conventions. I've been to the, I've, I've done it all for the Republicans. But I realized that I could not be a Republican any longer in, I mean, we got Donald Trump. I mean, I, I can't vote for him, okay? I'm certainly not going to vote for Hillary because in reality, I did not see a distinction between the two for me. As a, as a, you know, a political, someone who's been involved in politics, I did not see a distinction between the two. So I began to look around. Now, having always, I knew about Ron Paul, wasn't really part of the Ron Paul revolution. Actually, funny story, I was on the side at the conventions that were trying to keep the Ron Paul people from stealing the Republican Party. Now, I didn't actively work against them, but I didn't help them either, okay? And I remember... When I had my interview to be a state delegate, the first question I was asked, you're not one of those Ron Paul people, are you? Because we're not going to send you to the state if you're if you're going to vote for Ron Paul when you get to the state. And I'm like, 
Oh, I don't even know that Ron Paul guy. So, I mean, I know of him, but I don't know. I'm like, yeah, you guys relax. But that's what was going on in the Republican Party at that time. There was a there was the Ron Paul revolution and it was, you know, and. If the if if the people that were doing it had only held course, you know, we might be in a different place now. But, you know, hindsight's 2020. So, you know, <clears throat> I got to the I got to the um, the election, you know. During the election, I was, I was, or during the primaries, I was a Ted Cruz guy. Okay. Ted Cruz had some things that were egregious to me, you know, bombing other countries. I never felt like we should be in, you know, I do not call them wars. I call them excursions because for you to have a war, you have to have declaration by Congress. So I don't call them wars. So we have excursions all over the world right now. So those things bothered me about Ted Cruz. He had some really good things that I liked, uh, you know, but. But when Ted Cruz didn't make it and, and, you know, he was knocked out by Trump, I realized I now have no political home. So I disassociated myself completely from the Republican Party, completely shut off all of my Republican connections in terms of the Facebook, Facebook groups I was in. I shut them all off. And I really just took a few months off and just really pondered what I was going to do. And then along comes Austin Peterson. And I heard Austin Peterson in an interview and he was this libertarian guy and he sounded a lot like a Republican, but he had libertarian ideas, you know, heard about the nap, didn't really know what the nap was. For those of you listening who might not know, that's the non-aggression principle. That's one of our, that's one of our deep seated beliefs that we don't use coercion or aggression to achieve our end goals in the Libertarian Party. As a matter of fact, when you join the party, you pledge to be one of those people who won't use coercion or force to get what you want. So, you know, I started doing research about Austin Peterson. I started looking at the Libertarian Party. I started going on to, you know, and I'm talking about in depth, you know, because I, you know, if I'm going to dive into the party, I want to know what the party's all about. Well, of course, you know, you always find that guy in the Libertarian Party who's a nutter, okay? Because, look, every party has that guy, okay? It doesn't matter. I mean, the Democrats have that guy. The Republicans have that guy. The Libertarians have those guys, okay? All right? So that's a, that's a fact, all right? And, you know, the, but, but I understood why, because every Libertarian I've ever met has a, they have a deep love of individualism. And, you know, I learned quickly that there are levels of libertarianism, which to me was great because as a Republican, here's your platform. Don't deviate. We'll kick you out or we'll marginalize you. This is it. You have to believe in no abortion, but you have to believe in capital punishment. Wait, what? Wait, say that to me again. You have to believe in no abortion, but then you have to believe in capital punishment. That doesn't make any sense to me. So... We're going to use the state in two instances, one to prevent and one to use force to end someone's life. That was completely foreign to me. Then you look on the Democrat side of the equation and, you know, they're like big businesses running everything. And, you know, we're for the little guy. And I'm looking, I'm going, no, you're really not. You're really like just like what you call the Republicans. But you, you know, you, but, but, but you look good on paper. You look really good and you look caring and you care about, you care about gay marriage and you care about all those, you know, the social issues that again, I was sort of, 
you know, apolitical on. Again, I thought it was that just should be an individual's choice. I mean, who am I to tell another person who they love and who they don't love? Or who am I to tell another person if you want to use, you know, mar- marijuana, whatever, use cannabis. I'm I, That just never was really a thing for me. But not a Republican. If you're a Republican, you, no, no, we, reefer madness, okay? You cannot, you can, you know, th- this is bad. It's a gateway drug. Everyone will, you know, you will, you, you'll be using heroin next week, okay? I mean, this is how it works. And, you know, I thought that, I thought that, that was just silly to me. Okay. And again, as you extract yourself more from the two party system, you begin to see all of the inconsistencies from both of them. So then I began to look at, well, why does the two party system really, why, why, why are there no other parties? Why is there no green party? Why are there no independents? Why are there no libertarians? Cause you know, that's what I always say. I always used to hear, <laughs> you're a libertarian. What are you guys like dog catcher? You have no political office. And I thought, you know, that's actually, that's actually a good, that's actually a good question. Why, why, why are libertarians unsuccessful? Ballot access laws. I realized that in Georgia, the Democrats and the Republicans got together and they passed all kinds of laws, not just to keep libertarians out, but to keep everyone else out so they could have their own little, their own little fiefdom. Uh, you know, when election time came and I'm like, okay, well, whatever, we'll just, just don't be anything. Just be an independent. Oh, but then you have to have petitions. You have to go out and convince your fellow citizens why you should be an independent. And yes, you have to get thousands of those, not a few. You have to get thousands. And I thought, wow, that that's awful. I mean, you know, from a, from a choice standpoint. So what you're telling me then is I can go to Kroger and I have more choice on the soda aisle than I do for politicians who are going to represent me. And I thought to myself that that can't possibly be right, but it was. Then I began to look more into, well, how come Georgia's all carved up the way it, I mean, look at these congressional districts. These things are awful. Who, no one in their right mind would do that. Oh, unless you're the party in charge and you want to, you know, consolidate your power. And so I started doing a lot of research on gerrymandering. Okay. And how, and you know, look, this, no one has a carte blanche on gerrymandering. Both sides do it. And, and, and it's even worse than just doing it to each other. They actually negotiate. Okay. We'll take this one and we'll give you that one. And we'll make one here in the middle. That's sort of, you know, like wink, wink, nod, nod is close. So that we keep the courts out because whether people realize it or not, Georgia, Georgia's uh, districts are still subject to court review. So they have to be real careful how they draw these districts. But again, it's two parties negotiating over everything. We, you know, the libertarians don't get a say. So I go to the libertarian party. I begin to read. I begin to, I begin to uh, read things like uh, Road to Serfdom, you know, and begin to look more at liberty, less at politics, more at liberty. Then I begin to frame everything in terms of how was the government involved in this? Where, because, you know, since the Patriot Act, I realized the government is stealing more and more and more freedom. You know, now I say that to people and they step back and they frown at me because there's not one person you're going to meet that is going to tell you they're not free. What do you mean? I get up in the morning. I can go where I want. I can, you know, I, I go to my job. I can go to a movie. I go out to eat. I'm free. No, you're not free. 
Okay. What you are is you are able to do those things because no one's passed the law yet to say you can't. Okay. That's more likely what's going to happen. Look around at all the things that you can't do or that, or that there's a tax on or that there's a fee on or that there's something. Just, just look around at all those things. And you know, as you dig deeper in, you begin to see, wow, the government is in every part of my life. They are in every part of my life. They, I, I, I really don't have any kind of, you know, not only, not only normal freedom, you know, but what about economic freedom? You know, we just passed a $1.3 trillion omnibus that is going to, by next year, add another trillion dollars in the next six months to our debt. We are going to go from 21 to 22 in the next six months. Now, it took us a long time to go from 11 to 20. We're going to add a trillion. At that rate in the next 10 years, we'll be 38 trillion. We will almost have doubled the 20 in the next decade. So what's being stolen from you is your economic freedom. And neither party cares. It's obvious. I mean, tell me what small government Republican passes a $1.3 trillion omnibus when they control all of the levers of government. So let's put that to bed. The small government GOP is over, okay? We now have big government, and it doesn't matter who's in charge. We now have big government. So now we're forced with big government, and along along with big government comes all the other nasty things, okay? It's not just economics. Big government will want to have they, they, they will have all their dealings with big business. So big government and big business will, will work together. That's, that's one of the downsides. And big government will begin to step on more of your freedoms because that is, that, that's what a big government does. It will continue, your, your freedoms will continue to be eroded. I think when I realized that I was and I'm going to use the word libertarian in air quotes because, you know, the one thing about libertarians is we're not big joiners. Okay. We don't, we don't do a lot of joining. Uh, but I would encourage everybody uh, and in all seriousness, you know, look, look at the, look at the libertarian party of Georgia, you know, look and see what we're doing. This is not the old libertarian party of Georgia. This is the new, there are lots of, you know, we have a, we have a wide base of uh, people in the party. Now we have millennials, we have old guys like me, you know, we have, I mean, we have, we have a wide, a wide base of, um, you know, and, and we have, we have a very diverse group uh, coming from all sides. But I think when I realized I had, I had reached libertarian nirvana, you know, everybody was all up in arms about the Senate race in Alabama, you know, Roy Moore versus whatever. That was all that was in the news. And I woke up the next day after the election and I just didn't care. I just didn't care because you know what? I realized it didn't matter who got elected. What it just, it just didn't make any difference. So for me, I realized then that I was, I, I had reached the point that I wanted to reach where I realized that government was going to continue the way it was. And we're going to have to fight it from our side. And, and when I say fight it, I mean that from promoting liberty, teaching people about liberty. You know, 
I am under no delusion that we will have a libertarian president in my lifetime because the reality is it's going to take some gigantic event for that to happen. But I'm perfectly willing to be Johnny Appleseed. Okay. I'm going to drop, I'm going to drop my nuggets out on, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to lay the seeds and lay the groundwork. My kids, my grandkids, you know, they may be the ones who, who uh, benefit from this. But for me, I'm perfectly willing to understand that this may not happen in my lifetime. I'm okay with that. Okay. Because I realize that, you know, we have to start somewhere. We, we absolutely have to start somewhere. And, you know, our government will get more intrusive as it gets bigger. It will have to. It will have to get more intrusive as it gets bigger. The government is going to need more from, from the citizens. And they're going to they're gonna come get it. Whatever way they want to come get it, they're going to come get it. Government is force. You know, there's no, tr- try not paying your property taxes. Seriously, try not to pay your property taxes. You want to think you own your house? Even a paid for house. Even a paid for house. Try that and see. They will send men with guns. They will kick you out and they will sell your property on the courthouse steps for whatever you owe them in taxes. And they won't think twice about you. That is a fact. And that's what government does. Government is force and coercion. You know, they'll, they'll talk nice to you and they'll, and they'll, and they'll offer you incentives, but in the end, they will make you do it. And we have, there's got to be a better system. Okay. There just has to be a better system. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel the liberty flow through me. I know that sounds corny. Okay. I know you hear people, you, I say that to people and they're like, don't be stupid. Okay. As a, but, you know, I consider libertarianism love. And, you know, I say that and people are like, what are, what are you talking, what are you talking about? And, you know, for you to want a level of freedom, you have to be willing to give that to your fellow human. Okay. You have to. If I want to be free, and I'm talking about free in spirit and mind and economically and all that, I got to be willing to give that to the person sitting across from me. I have to. Because if I want to keep them constrained, then there, there'd be no reason they, you know, I, I would be constrained as well. And, you know, I really, I, I really feel like for me, I'm home. I really feel like I'm home. Matt. Well, um, I'm I'm probably the youngest gentleman in this room, um, and I think I seem to have the distinction of not having to need a libertarian nirvana moment. Um, I was a libertarian before I was old enough to vote, and I couldn't tell you where I first heard the term. Um, I had a high school lit teacher um, who probably was responsible for it. He introduced me to Ayn Rand by accident, and I like to say that I was bitten by a radioactive Ayn Rand as a teenager in high school. Um, but I, I was raised in not an ultra conservative, but a conservative Republican household. And, uh, as I was reading Rand, it just, it, it was like, okay, this is interesting. And, oh, I did some research. Oh, she kind of helped found this party. She and a whole bunch of other people. Um, and they don't seem to be interested in, you know, the big corporations and the the big whatever's the big is what scares me about all of it, the government, the the taxes and everything. And around that same time, I started hearing about Neil Bortz and the fair tax and, you know, sales tax, not income tax. And that really resonated with me. Um, and then I went to theater school and got surrounded by lefties. 
Um, I can't even call them Democrats. They were just lefties. I don't know wh- how they voted, um, but just everything was big government and, you know, you're supposed to help people, even if you don't really want to be doing that right now. And I just, I never agreed with that. Um, and I, I was always the weird guy who, you know, the, there were a couple of votes while I was in college and they were all like, yeah, I voted for Obama. Who'd you vote for? Uh, the libertarian candidate. Why? You know, you wasted your vote. And I hated that argument. Um, and for me, it's, it's not been a journey to libertarian. It's about, it's been understanding why I feel like a libertarian. And I, I totally agree with what you said. I cannot stand the two party system. I think it's become so entrenched. Like I said, I don't think of it in Democrat, Republican, it's left and right. They want the same stuff. It's just the Republicans want to have death penalty and no abortion. The Democrats want no death penalty, but abortion's fine. I'm not going to get into the debates on those subjects, but I don't agree with either, you know, Chinese menu. Pick this, pick that, pick this. Um, The libertarians, however, it seems to be like, do whatever you want. Don't harm anybody. And stay out of my business. I, I that's exactly what I feel should be. Um, and we don't want to pay for it. Exactly. And we don't want to pay for it. Yes. Um, yeah, I've I've made several bad jokes about that in recent months <laughs> with uh, with the rise of gender identity and all of that stuff. It's like you, you believe what you want, just stay out of my pocketbook about there it. There you go. Um. So yeah, it, it's fairly short and sweet for me because I there was no journey to it. I, I when I became an adult, I was already there. So that's excellent. Fairly short and sweet. That's excellent. But I mean, you 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 were exposed to uh, to uh, Anne Ryan. So, I mean, yes. you know that that's excellent. I mean, it 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 did it did at least give you some some formative mm-hmm. base for for where that came from. And, yes. And uh, you know, and, and I find it interesting that you were. Uh, you were with the lefties. Yeah. I, I like that. Progressives. Um, Obama could do no wrong. Right. Uh, right. Bush got re, uh, Bush Jr. got reelected and oh God, the world's going to end. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you, re, and you realized, you realized when you were watching that whole theater go on that really yeah. didn't matter it, who was president. Yeah, it really didn't. I mean, I mean, Bush, Bush bombed and Obama didn't even slow down. Yeah. And Trump hasn't slowed down after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're bombing people all over the world yep. and it didn't matter who was president, you know, and that, and, and same thing that for me, I looked at that and went, really, do we, does it matter? Right. I mean, does it matter? And, you know, yes, it matters because we as libertarians, we need to make it matter. And I think we need to go back to that. Well, Ted, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yes. And, uh, Tim, great story. Thank you. Thank you. Matt, thank you so much. Matt, uh, we're going to give him a special thanks and shout out for not only participating, but for being our producer. If uh, anyone's interested in finding out more about the uh, Libertarian Party of Georgia, please visit our website at lpgeorgia.com. And also, we have a very active Facebook page, uh, the Libertarian Party of Georgia. Please go there, like our page. We, uh, we have... We have a couple of people who work on the page that really will make you think. You may not like everything you see, but they will make you think, which as a libertarian, I certainly appreciate that. Thanks for everybody uh, uh, who's listening, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to our next episode.
You've been listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. The theme song for this episode was Metaltania by Kevin MacLeod, released to the public domain through freepd.com. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and leave a review. You can email the show's producers at podcast at lpgeorgia.com. If you're a libertarian in the state of Georgia, don't forget to find your local affiliate at lpgeorgia.com.